Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. In my mind are all the tides, their seasons, their ebbs, and their flows. In my mind are all the halls, the endless procession of them, the intricate pathways. When this world becomes too much for me, when I grow tired of the noise and the dirt and the people, I close my eyes and I name a particular vestibule to myself. Then I name a hall. I realize that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unraveled, a text to be interpreted, and that if we ever discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and all that remains will be mere scenery. Not everything about the wind was bad, Sometimes it blew through the little voids and crevices of the statues and caused them to sing and whistle in surprising ways. I had never known the statues to have voices before, and it made me laugh for sheer delight. All these quotes come from uh, the wonderfully strange, wonderfully beautiful new book called Piranese by Susanna Clark. And uh, she described the book very vaguely as about a man who lives in a house in which an ocean is imprisoned. Now, I'm not going to give away too much of the book. Uh, When I read it, I very specifically avoided reading reviews or listening to podcasts about it. I didn't even read uh, the book jacket because I really wanted to be immersed in this world. And if that's possible for you, I highly recommend it as well. Um, I am just going to use basically that imagery that Susanna Clark gives us, this house in which an ocean is imprisoned. And I will say that the title character, Piranesi, uh, is in this, um, this other world, this labyrinthine, marble-hauled world. And uh, he sort of represents um, a simpler time, maybe simpler, maybe uh, misleading, maybe a truer time. Uh, there's lots to be discovered, lots to be discovered about the real nature of this hall, and a lot of it is never really revealed. It's very mysterious. But um, if you've never heard uh, of the name Piranesi, I actually hadn't. The name comes from uh, the 18th century Italian artist Giovanni Piranesi, who was uh, an, an architect, um, but is primarily remembered now for his etchings of these fictional prisons and if you look them up they are just um sort of wildly interesting they'll have um, impossible geometric designs uh these are these are buildings that could have never existed um they'll also have uh torture devices and you know terrifying things in there and uh you can certainly see uh that what was going on um 
with Piranesi is reflecting a wider interest, even as this is the time of, you know, sort of the Enlightenment, right? It is also the time of, uh, of the Gothic novel uh, and uh, sort of this obsession with sort of the darker, more mystical side of things. And you can certainly see uh, from these drawings, from these etchings, uh, that surrealism, um, surrealist artists were very, very influenced by Piranesi. So, um, and as Susanna Clark uh, cites Piranesi as, as a huge influence on her, and especially just this, this idea of these endless halls and these endless rooms. So if you can sort of picture these echoing chambers and in, um, and in Susanna Clark's book, this idea of um, um, that we're up against the waves and these halls just kind of go on forever and the sounds you hear are the wind, sound of birds, the tide lapping in and out, and you get used to the sound. You know them so well because it's what you hear every single day, and you're very in tune with it. Um, in, a, in an article in The Guardian, they, they quote extensively uh, from an interview with Clark about this book, and uh, I'll be referencing a th that a lot uh, just to sort of bring out the, the imagery she wanted, she wanted to focus on. Uh, she says, we've all had this dream of wandering in a great house. And I thought, yes, I do have that dream quite often. I was trying to, to conjure up an environment that is quite startling. And at the same time, you think, I've almost been here before. Um, and she references uh, that, that Narnia was actually a huge influence on her um, when thinking of this world. Uh, there's a statue uh, in, in Piranesi in her book that uh, is, is a fawn in the pose of Mr. Tumnus. <laughs> um, I quote here again from Susanna Clark, anyone who's read Narnia as a child for whom it is a formative book is constantly aware that they have that desire. One day there will be the wardrobe something that will take you there. It's a very old longing in me. So um, if you listen to the first episode of this podcast, uh, it was very appropriately called Into the Wardrobe. And I think that Susanna Clark is uh, bringing up exactly what we talked about in that first episode, this idea that um, in the realm of dreams and imagination and wonder and awe, there is this persistent belief, uh, stubborn belief that there is um, that there are moments in life when the wardrobe opens, when there is a breaking through into another reality. Um, and if you've, if you've skipped around, maybe you just found this podcast episode, um, maybe go back and listen to that one, uh, although you can certainly dive in right here. Again, the, um, the purpose of this podcast is to find those things that inspire wonder, awe, and sometimes terror or um, even a sort of discomfort. Um, those things we want to explore too, and I think the idea of the labyrinth, uh, the minotaur, and uh, this sort of echoing chamber of halls, while very, very beautiful, can also be very, very dangerous. And so that's what we're going to look at in this episode, is uh, we're going to look at, at Piranesi, this book. We're going to learn about Giovanni Piranesi, uh, the inspiration for that title character. Uh, at least in name, and um, we are also going to look at the legend of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. So let's um, let's go go way back in time. We'll go go to our to the first to the first story here, which is really the story of the Minotaur. Um, before we go back to Susanna Clark and before we go back to Piranesi and these ideas of these endless prisons, these endless rooms, uh, what that means in a surrealist, macabre, gothic sense, and uh, what that means for our idea of the imagination. So let's go back. Maybe you know this story. Maybe you don't. Um, I think it was, uh, 
I think it was Book of Virtues. I think that was the name of this uh, show I watched as a kid. Um, it was it was sort of retelling of Aesop's fables and uh, also some stories from Greek mythology. And I distinctly remember uh, the one about Theseus and the Minotaur. So that was my initial exposure. I did uh, do some research since then just to make sure <laughs> that my uh, childhood recollections were, were on point. Um, so uh, basically, there's this king named King Minos, uh, king of Crete. And um, he's married, he has children, um, and sort of his... Uh, his devotion is to the sea, sea god Poseidon, and Poseidon demands that he sacrifice a bull every year to him. And one year, uh, Poseidon uh, gives him a very, uh, an especially beautiful bull, a white bull. And uh, Minos is so taken with this bull that instead of sacrificing it to Poseidon, he decides to keep it for himself. And this enrages Poseidon, and he uh, decides to curse Minos's wife uh, by making her fall in love with the bull. And in um, typical uh, Greek fashion, a sort of odd pairing happens here. Um, and uh, the, the queen does indeed fall in love with this bull, and uh, from that union comes out the minotaur, um, who is half man, half bull. And in it, it, there's actually more than one rendition, whether it has a, sort of a, um, a centaur-like appearance with the head of a man and the body of a bull. Um, but most often it is, um, it is portrayed uh, with, the, with the body of a man and the head of a bull. And he's sort of this bloodthirsty creature. Um, he, he can't be satisfied by, um, by human food or, um, or cow food. <laughs> he's not out grazing. So he's, uh, he truly grows up into a monster. And the solution here is that uh, Minos entraps the Minotaur into a labyrinth, um, this, this endless maze um, where he's running around constantly. And uh, after war with the Athenians, uh, they come to this agreement that every nine years, uh, 14 youths will be, um, will be given up to Crete. Um, and and uh, given uh, to the Minotaur, set loose into the labyrinth, basically for the Minotaur to devour. So um, one year in um, Hunger Games style fashion, <laughs> um, I just always think of, you know, Katniss coming out and say, you know, I volunteer, I volunteer tribute. tribute. This is exactly what Theseus does. Theseus volunteers. Um, he thinks that he can defeat the Minotaur. He's um, a very uh, cocky young guy, uh, future Greek hero here, and he knows it. So <laughs> he um, he heads over to Crete, volunteers to go in, and um, Minos's daughter um, Ariadne falls very much in love with Theseus, and she knows sort of the secrets of um, of the labyrinth because she, you know, has grown up there. She's seen what happens, and she also knows the architect of the maze. So she tells Theseus to keep his head down, um, not to make any turns, just to go straight, head right to the center. And most importantly, she gives him um, a ball of thread for him to take into the maze with him. And that way he can find his way back out after he slays the Minotaur. So uh, that's exactly what he does, and he succeeds. He um, finds the Minotaur, a uh, violent altercation ensues, and uh, the Minotaur is dead. Theseus um, helps the other youths who have been in the labyrinth get out. He had tied the string um, uh, near the front, near the front of the labyrinth, and is able to get out. 
And Theseus has many more adventures, uh, goes on, um, basically, uh, actually abandons uh, <laughs> Ariadne, um, different versions of that, um, why that happens, and uh, the, his father ends up committing suicide because Theseus had promised that um, if he was successful in his task, he would raise white, white sails on his return home, but he forgot to do that, um, and he, uh, so his father sees the, the black sails are still up, thinks his son has been killed, and... Um, kills himself, but conveniently that makes way for Theseus as king. But um, anyway, the the idea of the this myth of the Minotaur, um, the maze, the labyrinth, has been absolutely fascinating uh, to, to many, many, many generations. Um, of course, the Minotaur himself is a fascinating figure. Is he, um, what does he represent? I mean, certainly um, people have posited, you know, this was like a a fear-based myth about um, deformities in childhood or even something like bestiality or you know just sort of this um, that there was that this represented the dangers of um, of of the unknown and of also what happens when you sort of mess with the laws of nature and when you mess with the gods too when you when you don't sacrifice that special bull that Poseidon gave you uh, there is going to be chaos that ensues so this idea um, of the Minotaur was also very fascinating, interesting, again, since we uh, talked earlier, or I mentioned that uh, the Pyrenees' uh, um, prisons were very influential on the Surrealists. There was actually a Surrealist magazine, you know, that Picasso and all these other um, artists contributed to, and it was called the Minotaur. And there are lots and lots and lots of Surrealist paintings that involve the Minotaur. And I just find that really interesting. It's just one of those um, images that intersect uh, over many, um, many different genres. And it's just interesting to see that it keeps popping up, uh, especially in the realm of the surreal and the macabre. Um, so, and also this idea of, of the labyrinth, of this maze, this, this, this perfectly designed uh, prison, essentially, that traps the Minotaur and also traps anybody who is uh, unfortunate enough to be let loose inside its walls. Um, and then we think of Giovanni Paranese designing these um, impossible worlds, you know, mazes of prisons and endless staircases. Uh, uh, some scholars have even thought of the the switching um, staircases in Harry Potter as being inspired by Piranesi, that just these, these impossible worlds of architecture. And some people have also posited that um, this was sort of uh, a warning in architecture of sort of what uh, the, the sort of just endless creation could do would be to create um, sort of monstrous places, um, that, that this was sort of the end of that. thinking of the labyrinth, I also was reminded of uh, Simone Weil, who's a very interesting um, woman. She was a French philosopher, mystic, and political activist. Um, but she uh, has has some very interesting writings. And uh, in one of them, she writes, I, this is a long quote, but I think it's worth reading in full, um, just because if we've, we've just heard this story about the Minotaur being at the center of the labyrinth, at the center of the maze, and uh, Simone Weil imagines a different scenario. She writes, 
The beauty of the world is the mouth of a labyrinth. The unwary individual who on entering takes a few steps is soon unable to find the opening. Worn out, with nothing to eat or drink, in the dark, separated from his dear ones, and from everything he loves and is accustomed to, he walks on without knowing anything or hoping anything, incapable even of discovering whether he is really going forward or merely turning round on the same spot. But this affliction is as nothing compared with the danger threatening him. For if he does not lose courage, if he goes on walking, it is absolutely certain that he will finally arrive at the center of the labyrinth. And there God is waiting to eat him. Later he will go out again, but he will be changed. He will become different. After being eaten and digested by God, afterward he will stay near the entrance so that he can gently push all those who come near into the opening. So, <laughs> what do we make of that? Um, Simone Vale was also very interested in this idea of attention, of finding the still point of the turning world. And for her, um, God at the center of the labyrinth, who was equally beautiful as he was terrifying, was this moment of um, consummation, of consumption, of uh, violence and beauty all at once. You know, she says, the beauty of the world is the mouth of a labyrinth. So this this idea of entering into wonder, entering into story, is also entering into a labyrinth, uh, which is not maybe what we think of when we think of entering the wardrobe, but it actually fits with how Susanna Clarke painted this other world in her book Paranese, which is that um, that entering into, uh, into, into beauty, into stillness, into calm and awareness of the world actually requires a sort of entering into uh, the complete unknown and entering into a maze, into endless halls and uh, endless tides in the ocean. Uh, so I think that Simone Veil's imagery here is actually really spot on. And it's just interesting to have the myth of the Minotaur in our heads and think about um, sort of maybe in a, in a post-Christian world, sort of how we uh, psychologically replace the idea of um, a Greek monster uh, with with a Christian God, with a Christian God who who does not destroy or in destroying um, creates. You know, it's a very mystical view. I mean, you can read these sort of similar imagery in um, Saint Catherine of Siena, uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, that um, that 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 encounter with God or and supreme beauty and absolute love is also um, you know think of the ecstasy of Saint Teresa is a piercing experience is like a dis as destructive as it is creative, so I think that that is also a beautiful um, image to keep in mind and certainly goes along with the idea of how this simultaneously something like Piranesi's prisons could be simultaneously macabre and gothic and beautiful in their geometry and in their endless. Uh, endless possibility of endless staircases, endless mazes, that there's something um, uh, uprooting about this. About it. It's about getting outside of the self, entering the maze, becoming lost in the maze, um, and about having the courage to go on walking. So going back to um, Susanna Clark's uh, Piranesi and uh, and this article from The Guardian about sort of her inspirations. She says that childhood was quite difficult for me in the way it is for children who are moved from place to place. I had a vivid fantasy life saving me from quite a lot of unhappiness. It wasn't fantasy about myself or what I was going to do. It was always stories I told myself about characters. 
The divide is between people who see the world for what they can use it for and the idea that the world is important because it is not human. It's something we might be part of a community with rather than just a resource. That is something that Piranesi grasps intuitively. That was, that was very important, something I wanted to say. So two things she says here um, about how her childhood was about, um, was sort of saved her from the, uh, from the uprootedness of her own life, from her, from her life of moving around. And this reminded me of C.S. Lewis, again, her, and her love for Narnia. C.S. Lewis was, um, he went to a boarding school that he absolutely hated. He was miserable there. Um, he lost his mother at a young age. Uh, there, there's lots of stories of people who, you know, maybe feel a little ill at ease about uh, their life in this world and relying on the creation of these other worlds and relying on books and their own characters and stories to save them and redeem uh, the harsher realities about the world that they occupy. And Susanna Clark also brings up here, um, it goes back to that one of those quotes I read in the beginning about how knowledge, our, our sort of unending search for knowledge and our command of it, command of the world, is um, this this idea that we can use the world, that the world is, um, is one big resource that we can monopolize for our intentions. Um, but the character in her book, Paranese, sees the world as something um, benevolent, uh, or at least, if not benevolent, at least amoral, um, and certainly at ease. <laughs> it's not uh, It's not fighting against him. It's not um, out to harm him. It, it simply exists and it's outside of him. And because it's not human, it's worth uh, respecting just as much as uh, it's worth respecting other human beings. That there's sort of an innate understanding that uh, the human race is part of this, this natural world. And this reminds me of, um, it's sort of a poem um, called Desiderata. Uh, so supposedly was found inscribed in the 1600s on uh, St. Paul's Church in Baltimore. Uh, we have a print of it, and it, in it, it says, Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Again, you are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And I think modern man is so alienated from his environment, so outside of it. You know, even right now I'm sitting inside, I'm at my computer in my office, and I look outside, I look out the window at the world, at the trees and, uh, you know, the wind blowing through them and everything. And I'm, I'm sort of outside of that. I enter into that world, but I also retreat from it so frequently. Um, this idea that human beings maybe in their quest for knowledge and in their perceived um, domination of the natural world have alienated themselves so much that we forget that, um, you know, we have a right to exist and that, uh, and, that, and that peace in the world comes from a cooperation and understanding and a uh, gentleness with the world that um, the character of Paranesi understands so intuitively, so... Um, naturally and that that is something that we have that we have very much lost um so uh go on here um Susanna Clark also says I was aware that I was a person cut off from the world bound in one place by illness Piranesi considers himself very free but he's cut off from the rest of humanity 
She says, I felt locked away, unable to work, to be of any relevance. It's changed with lockdown, but up until now, there's been this strong thing in our culture that you're important because of what you do. So if you can't do anything, you have no relevance. That was a very hard thing to deal with for a long time. So um, Susanna Clark suffered from sort of not agoraphobia, um, but a sort of she, she didn't want to leave her house partially because she had uh, chronic fatigue. Um, and after she published her first book, I think it was back in 2005, I haven't read it, but it's on my, on my list. Um, she, everybody was anticipating when the next one would come out and it'd been so long and, uh, she just felt paralyzed. So this idea of, again, being cut off from the world, what's interesting in, in the book, in the book Piranesi is that while Piranesi is very at ease with the natural world, he's also very lonely. So there's also this sense of how do we merge this idea of um, of the natural world and being being at peace in these in this endless labyrinth of beauty um, with uh, with the the messiness and the importance and the necessity of other human beings. And uh, I don't know if there's there's a, a solution to that, but it's uh, it's very important. <laughs> it's a very important uh, thing to to contemplate is uh, you know these extremes that we find ourselves in often is uh, between extreme loneliness, um, extreme despair, um, because Piranesi is not in despair. He's in actually great joy most of the time, but he um, is also completely alone. And uh, I don't know if that's that's a real joy. Uh, and again, thinking of the labyrinth with the Minotaur or with God at the center, you know, what are we looking for in this maze? There could be a whole, a whole metaphor there about, um, you know, whether you find God or you find or you find the minotaur at the center of all things and uh and and maybe maybe that has something to do with uh whether or not we are able to reconcile these contradictory aspects of ourselves you got to hear me uh, rambling a lot on this episode. I hope it was interesting and I hope that you'll read the book. Uh, I think it's it's really, really interesting and um, it's it's stuck with me and I'm, I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time. And it also introduced me to uh, Giovanni Piranese and his et- etchings, his amazing es- etchings, which I definitely encourage you to look up as well. And uh, so my recommendation for something wonderful this week is uh, is a film, which you can actually find on YouTube. Um, it's a film in which um, Yo-Yo Ma plays Bach uh, in in <laughs> in the imagined world of um, Piranesi's prisons. It's called The Sound of the Karachi. So. Um, it's it's uh, they they basically have Yo-Yo Ma playing and then sort of these artists and digital artists impose prison the the imaginative prisons of um, of Piranesi into uh, into Yo-Yo Ma's world there letting him play inside it and they even went so far as to work with the acoustics and things like that um, to to make it sound as if it was as if he was really there. And uh, in the film, Yo-Yo Ma really emphasizes how where you play, whether you have an audience or not, um, changes the way you play. It changes the music. It changes the way we interact with it. So it's a, it's a really beautiful, very unique, interesting 
interesting film. It's about an hour long. Um, so you can find it on uh, YouTube. If, if you look up The Sound of the Carcheri or you just look up Yo-Yo Ma Piranesi, um, it'll come up. It's in a video called Inspired by Bach's Cello Suites 1 and 2, The Music Garden and the Sound of the Carcheri. The, the movie I'm talking about starts about an hour in. Uh, the first uh, film I haven't watched it yet, but it also looks uh, looks beautiful. Um, the, the it's uh, the, the the answer to the question: What if we created a garden inspired by Bach? So uh, some some beautiful music and a beautiful film there for you. So I'll play um, sort of the beginning of the film so you can get a feel for it, and um, you can look it up for yourself. And I will also put the link uh, in the show notes. Uh, so. And again, um, you know, you can find more about this podcast and uh, contact me and everything else um, at my website, bornofwonder.com. Um, and again, I really appreciate any ratings. Uh, if you go on iTunes, you can just um, put a rating up. If you put a comment, even better. Um, I hope you like it. I hope uh, I hope that this will continue to inspire you and sort of there's there's endless things to talk about and to explore so i'm excited um i have episodes lined up about Anne of green gables and sacred music and uh, gk chesterton and lots and lots of other things so um i hope that uh that we'll continue to enjoy uh entering the wardrobe uh through many many different avenues the many wardrobes in the world <laughs> the many labyrinths of beauty uh, that Simone Vale taught us about today. So uh, again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Katie Marquette, and you've been listening to Born of Wonder. I think we're going to try and do something pretty unusual. Um, nothing that we are, are doing actually exists. Putting me in a space that exists on a drawing, but that we're actually going to be, I'm actually going to be in that space or pretend I'm in this space. Um, playing a dance music that was never danced to, um, playing in, it's, all of this is in fact, we're trying to show something in film that doesn't exist except in our minds. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing.